0: You are listening to the Norton Library Podcast, where we explore classic works of literature and philosophy with the leading scholars of the Norton Library, a new series from W.W. Norton that introduces influential texts to a new generation of readers. I'm your host, Mark Chirino, with Michael von Cannon Producing, and today we present the second of our two episodes devoted to Charles W. Chestnut's novel from 1901, The Marrow of Tradition. To explore this text, we welcome back its editor, Autumn Womack. In our first episode, we discussed Chestnut's life and work, the historical context of his career, the Wilmington race riot, and some of the novel's characters. In this second episode, we ask Autumn Womack her favorite line from the novel, her techniques to teaching the marrow of tradition, this novel's contemporary relevance, and so much more. Autumn Womack is an assistant professor in the departments of African American Studies and English at Princeton University, where she specializes in African American literary culture at the turn of the 20th century. She is the author of The Matter of Black Living, The Aesthetic Experiment of Racial Data, 1880-1930. to Autumn Womack, welcome back to the Norton Library Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me back. It's so good to see you again.
0: Good to see you again. So why don't we start with your beautiful edition of Charles W. Chestnut's The Marrow of Tradition. And I'm looking at the front cover. Can you explain the design and the colors of this edition?
1: Yeah. So uh, the editors at Norton did a really wonderful job um, indexing the original first edition cover, which uses this exact same color scheme, which is like a a mustard and an orange. I think one of the things that we really wanted to do is really reference the the particular historical moment um, when this book was was published, which was really important to Chestnut and really important in African-American literature, but also kind of flag a really modern interpretation of that and draw this line of connection between the past and the present, which is one of the things that the introduction is doing and one of the things that um, Chestnut is asking us to do.
0: Excellent. So we're recalling the 1901 first edition of The Marrow of Tradition, Autumn, do you remember when you first read this novel?
1: I do remember when I first read the novel. Um, I was in graduate school getting my master's at University of Maryland. Um, so I did my master's at Maryland, my PhD at Columbia, and it was the fall of 2006. And I read it in Carla Peterson's nineteenth-century African, late 19th century African-American literature class. It came towards the end of the semester, um, but that was my first encounter with the novel.
0: Did you know much about chestnut or had you had much experience with chestnut uh, previously? I had
1: read The House Behind the Cedars in undergrad which is curious looking back because um, I don't even think they teach it very much anymore, at least I don't. So I had read Chestnut. I was a little bit familiar with him. I may have encountered The Conjure Tales at some point, too, in, in undergrad, but certainly um, The House Behind the Cedars. But I had never read The Marrow of Tradition before, so it was my first time reading the text. I had the really good fortune of reading it in the company of so many other late 19th century African-American novels. So it was all the Pauline Hopkins. It was all the Francis Harper. It was uh, the Dunbar so I was really able to think about how it um, was in conversation with this this really exciting moment of Black novel writing.
0: And does Chestnut figure prominently in your work? Chestnut
1: does figure prominently in my work now after doing this edition. So he doesn't really make an appearance in my first book. But the more I've been thinking with Chestnut, which, which happened by way of this introduction, I've really be- begun thinking about and as an intellectual who who deserves to be thought of in relationship to or at least alongside of folks like Du Bois and Washington and Ida B Wells which is a really kind of the way we think about black political um, and social thinkers and writers and reformers in the late 19th century but Chestnut was was really prolific he wrote as many novels so many speeches so many essays so I've begun to think about him in the company of of those kind of, of I think figures that we think of or that we tend to recall more, at least more readily.
0: Autumn, we touched on this somewhat in the first episode, but I'm wondering if there are common challenges to reading this book, if there are difficulties that you see students have when they first encounter the marrow of tradition.
1: Yeah, so... My experience is that students really love The Mirror of Tradition when they read it, both undergraduates and graduates. I mean, it's just a good story. It's captivating. Um, it has a great plot. But for those same reasons, it's really difficult because there is so much happening in this novel. Um, in the introduction to the novel, which he published in The Cleveland World, Ch- Chestnut describes the way that it, it braids together all these threads of interest and there are 5,000 threads, like he then goes on to list them, and there's like a murder, and an attempted rape, and an almost lynching, and a race riot, and um, a maybe marriage, and there's deception, and there's all of these – a lost will, sisters that are reunited – And so it's hard for students, I think, to know what to prioritize, right? There's those plot questions, but then there are these bigger kind of conceptual questions, right? He's staging the tension between old and new, past and present, um, different kinds of economic structures. So I don't know that students always know where exactly they should focus their attention. The other thing that's difficult is that this is such a particularly late 19th century novel and early 20th, I should say. And by that, I mean... He is making reference to all of these precise and specific cultural moments and objects that those readers would have recognized and been familiar with, and they would have been right there with him, whether it's a newspaper editorial, um, a kind of, of uh cultural moment, a political belief, right, an election, right? They would have they would have known exactly what he was talking about, right? It's really current in that way. But for 21st century readers who are getting further and further away from the 19th century, I think both physically, but also kind of culturally and technologically, it's hard to know what he's referencing, right? So I think it just feels as an object. I think it feels foreign to students. Um, They don't know what he's referencing without a deep, deep knowledge of the 19th century. So that makes for, I mean, an exciting teaching challenge, but I think it... It makes it a tricky read.
0: Do the various aspects of the novel and the various concerns and emphases, do they ultimately cohere or are there a lot of anarchic uh, elements to this novel? Some
1: of them cohere, some of them don't. Um, <laughs> so I think one thing that that happens is that the novel leaves open-ended a lot of um Kind of philosophical questions, but also plot lines. There's not a lot of resolution here. The end of the novel is kind of we're at an impasse, um, and I think that can be frustrating for readers. That probably was frustrating for 19th century readers. But I think part of what Chestnut is doing there is he's inviting readers actually to participate in in this moment, right? As readers, he's trying to activate a different kind of a different kind of responsibility, right, on the reader to do something uh, without solving everything for for the reader.
0: Now I'm going to ask you a question that's utterly impossible to answer. But in this entire novel, do you have a favorite line?
1: I do have a favorite line. Um, I'll give a shorter one because he has some beautifully long sentences in here. Um, so this line comes kind of, I guess, three quarters of the way through the novel. So this line is is given to us by um, the elder Tom Delamere. There's a younger one and an older one, um, and he is talking to his long term servant Sandy, who is being wrongly charged um, with murder and he's about to be lynched. And Sandy is giving him all of these kind of this long, long, long history of of how he got to where he is. And and when Tom is asking him, "What did you did you do it? What happened?" He's giving this long answer. And Tom interrupts him and says, why are you talking so much about the past? Let's get Back to the present, and that line to me is is so beautifully complex. It's so short. It's so perfectly perfectly executed from a writer's standpoint. But I think what it also is doing is it's um, announcing this really kind of proto-modernist relationship to time. Right? Let's get back to the present. Yeah. What does it mean to return to the moment that we are standing in right now? It's a totally different relationship to time. It kind of upends this. Um, fluid start to finish teleology or temporality that we think of as being kind of the backbone of the historical novel. And so I love it as as a way and an invitation to think about how this novel is also theorizing history and time. And those kinds of lines mm-hmm. happen throughout the text but that one, let's get back to the present. Um, and I, I think I might be butchering it just a bit, but no, I think that's one of my favorite lines.
0: Let us get back to the present. Let us, let us which yeah. is even
1: more interesting, because then it becomes like a collective action, like let yes. us. Uh, get back to. Um, So the idea that the present is actually something that you can leave and return to is just a a different way of, and and I think a really modernist way of thinking about um, literary form, but also temporality and literary form.
0: And in the context of the novel, it has the notion of the old South and the new South, and then uh, the racial implications of that. So it's really totally fascinating. And so I love what you write about that in your introduction.
1: Yeah, and they're all just in many ways like trying to return <laughs> right, yeah, right to this present that has already it has already passed, right? Um, and so that also causes a lot of anxiety for all of these characters.
0: Well, Autumn, this might be a related question, and I'm certainly not trying to foist another favorite sentence onto you. But I think the title itself, The Marrow of Tradition, is kind of interesting and mysterious. How do you read that? And how does that set us up for the narrative?
1: Yeah, I mean, in so many ways, this novel is about different kinds of traditions and competing definitions of tradition, right? Um, Is it Familial tradition is a cultural tradition, right? What's kind of the basis for tradition and, and what the white characters in particular are, are wrestling with is kind of what is, how do we make sense of the conception of tra- pre-Civil War, pre-emancipation conception of tradition, which was all about kind of inheritance and bloodlines, right? Um, you inherit from, fathers, in the case of white people, in the case of black individuals, you inherit from the mother, right? Um, All of that gets thrown into crisis, at least ostensibly, after the Civil War and after Reconstruction and the fail of Reconstruction. So I think ch- one of the things that Cheston is charging the readers with, with thinking through in relationship to the, the novel is kind of where does tradition lie, <laughs> right? Is it, in the blood, is it, how does it get passed down? How does it get inherited? When does it fall away? When does it kind of evaporate? Um, and not for nothing, I mean, this is fiction, right? I mean, he could have written a historical text. He just finished, after he published, before he published this, he had just finished writing the biography of Frederick Douglass. So he could have written a history, right? Um, or historical non-fictional account of the Wilmington race riots. Our racial massacre, I should say. But I think he's also pointing out that this fiction of tradition, right, it is a fiction, right? Or this 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 idea of this certain kind of tradition. But I think the question he's really asking is, what is the root of it? Where does it lie? Um, how does it grow? Does it fester, right? Is it visible? Is it invisible? And so that's it, that opens up a lot of different pathways for reading through the novel as well.
0: You mentioned that you... Recently reread the novel in order to teach it. What teaching techniques have you found to be particularly successful in imparting this novel to current students?
1: Yeah, so I've had some different success with this novel. Um, the last time I taught it, um, or one of the last times I taught it, I taught it in a class that's on, uh, histories of resistance and revolution and it's a literature class, and we think about all different kinds of articulations and expressions of resistance, so aesthetic, formal, right, um, geographic. And so this, this text I teach alongside Frank Webb's the Garys, and their friends were thinking about kind of the fictionalization of real life um, uh, uprisings and riots. Um, and so I have students actually find some of the cultural objects that Chestnut's referencing in the text, so it might be a newspaper article, it might be a census report, it might be a statistical study, um, and I have them read that kind of archival object in relationship to the fictional representation of it. And one of the questions we're asking is why fiction, right? Why did Chestnut choose to fictionalize it? What is what is embedding this uh, this historical object in a fictional fabric afford? Um, So that's really useful because it gets at a question of the utility of fiction in the 19th century, but also kind of imagination and invention and the relationship between the archive and the novel. Um, And then for the final project for that class, I had students do a mapping project where they mapped, I think, using like story maps or something. Um, they mapped the real Wilmington race riot, right? All the kind of locations that they could find from news coverage. And then they mapped and plotted how Chestnut imagined it. And we saw kind of points of intersection and points of divergence. And we really had a beautiful kind of conversation. And I think really generative about what Chestnut's story opened up, what it, what it left behind, what it imagined out. So that was really, really, really fun. Um, And then they had their little kind of archival objects floating around. That was great. So that's been a really useful way.
0: Autumn, we invite our Norton Library editors to offer us a hot take about their book. So do you have something counterintuitive to say about the marrow of tradition that you think flies in the face of what most people say about this work?
1: Uh, I don't know if it's a totally hot take and I don't know if it flies in the face, <laughs> but, but I mean, one take is, or I think one of my big readings of the novel is that this is an African American novel that's actually about white people, which is different from kind of a racially ambiguous novel, right? Like Dunbar wrote all these novels that kind of were cast with, with characters that were neither designated as black or white. This is not that, but it is an African American novel that is about whiteness, we might even say. Maybe another hot take. Some people, a lot of people read the end of the novel as kind of hopeful. I do not. I think it's quite pessimistic.
0: Those are excellent. Has the Marrow of Tradition ever been adapted or repurposed since its publication in a way that we might want to be aware of? Because they made a movie out of The House Behind the Cedars, didn't they? But I don't think there's been yeah
1: and the conjure tales and the
0: conjure tales oddly anything with the marrow of tradition
1: nothing prominent.
0: Well, can we at least explore why such a iconic novel wouldn't have an afterlife in different forms the way so many other works have? Could you see this being adapted into a movie, for instance?
1: I could see it being adapted to a movie. Um, I think that it would take an a really kind of amazing director to imagine an adaptation that is not a strict adaptation of the book, which is to say, this would be in a film without a plot, (laughs) even though there is so much plot. Um, So I think that would be a challenge. I mean, I think it is also, this is just off the top of my head, but I think it poses a similar challenge that was posed by autobiography of an ex-colored man, let's say, which James Weldon Johnson wanted to adapt into a film. I think it's really hard to fil- filmically visualize what essentially in, in the mayor of tradition is kind of the atmosphere of white supremacy. Um, I just, that is the antagonist. And I think that that would be tricky if we're staying kind of true to the feeling, the ethos of the film. I do think it's interesting that there has not been, though, a fictional, I mean, a, a filmic representation or a narration of the, the Wilmington race riots that, that, I, ah. that I know of. Um, that, to me, seems like maybe it's in the pipeline. I could see this being a miniseries. That might be interesting.
0: Ah, That would allow you to track the various plots and areas of emphasis
1: it's very cinematic and yet it kind of exceeds, I think the the two hour movie. I think a mini series might work. I also don't think that every book needs to be adapted. So I would say no.
0: (laughs) So what about music? Is there a playlist or are there songs that the Marrow tradition invites us to think about?
1: Yeah. So one way that I actually teach this book is I teach it with, um, Billie Holiday's strange fruit. It's kind of an intro, uh, there are the specter of lynching is kind of all over this text from kind of the the environment of the South, this like heavy sticky magnolia tree scent of magnolia trees that the novel opens with, which are of course kind of a symbolic um, reference to uh, the trees that that um, lynched individuals were hanged from. Um, so I think that's a really kind of wonderful way to think about kind of the atmosphere of this text with chestnuts trying to capture, right? There's kind of the sensory overload, especially in the first chapter of the the novel and, and really throughout. So I think I would, I would put that on there. Um, and there's also, I don't know what it would be, but there's also like these moments where there's like a lot happening. It's really fast paced. It's people have to get places and it's kind of chaotic and frenetic. So maybe, I don't know, like Nicholas Breitel, the person who did, um, the soundtrack for often the soundtracks for Barry Jenkins. That might be good. Something like that. Like there's a frenzy that needs to be conveyed in this.
0: Okay. That's great. So you mentioned uh, strange fruit and I wanted to ask you about a couple of your notes to the Norton library edition. So of all the notes that you write, one of the ones that I, I really focused on was your description of Lynch law. And this would be to uh, chapter 22, which is called How Not to Prevent a Lynching. And you go into some depth about the context of lynch law and the practice of lynching. And I wonder if what, what would be helpful for us to know about lynching with respect to this novel?
1: Yeah, um, so lynching is kind of a part of what I've been describing as kind of the cultural atmosphere that this book. Captures and conveys and, and kind of comes into focus against um, and so Chestnut's writing in the period when um, kind of extra legal racial violence was at its peak, right um, after the the end of presidential or radical Reconstruction, um, KKK activity spiked and alongside it lynching, right um, and at the same time there became a number of countless activist reformers who sought to kind of draw public attention to really the arbitrariness of lynch law. So the irony that I wanted to point out is lynch law is not a real law, but it was such kind of an arbitrary, unchecked practice that the law did not actually curtail um, that it it really there was no logic to it, right? Um, people could be, as I do well said, lynched for everything and anything and nothing at all. Right. Um, there could be this this false cry of rape, which was often kind of the main the main uh, trigger for for calling for a lynching. But it could be anything. Right. Any kind of social transgression um, was or could be means for extra legal violence, which often took the, the shape of lynching. So it, it produced a certain kind of anxiety uh, that was just kind of in the atmosphere. I keep using that word, but I think it's really important for thinking through Um thinking through the chestnut. And so what I love about the phrase Lynch law is nothing at all, but what I think the phrase captures is kind of the arbitrariness of the legal system and it's unwillingness to protect black life and it's willingness to protect um, perpetrators of white supremacist violence and, and really anti-black violence um, and racialized violence Um, and so this comes up again and again and again in the novel, right? We see kind of the ease with which lynching is called for or dismissed, the ease with which perpetrators kind of get galvanized um, and really think that they are acting for the law, right? So one of the things about lynch laws, we as kind of vigilante renegades are protecting our citizens in a way that the actual law never can. And of course, this is all a fiction.
0: Can you say a few words about the way Chestnut describes the actual activity? Is he unsparing as a realist writer? Does he show the ghastly elements of it? Does he spare details? How, how about the, the actual activity?
1: So we don't actually get a lynching here, right? There's an almost lynching, right? The chapter is called How Not to Prevent a Lynching, and the lynching actually ends up being prevented. Um, but what Chestnut does not hold back on is describing kind of the monstrosity of the mob as they are gearing up for the lynching. So there could be a way that he does stage a lynching. Many 19th century novels did. Um, and he, and a way that James Weldon Johnson does kind of depicts the scene of lynching as this kind of sensory scene of sensory overload. Like Johnson talks about the smells and the scent and the sound and Chestnut's that's like, actually what's, what's worth Focusing our attention to is kind of the animalistic nature of this mob. Um, so that becomes the, 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 what we are repulsed by. Um, what is supposed to activate our senses in a different way. So he pulls back on actually spotlighting the scene of a brutalized black individual and instead spotlights kind of the moral, um, the brutality of kind of the, the racial imagination.
0: Finally, autumn, I'm also wondering we're reading this in twenty twenty four yeah, and can you say anything about the contemporary relevance of this novel as opposed to reading it when it was published or even let's say fifty years ago? What is it about reading it today?
1: yeah, so I think it's it feels more sadly more relevant today in twenty twenty four even than when I wrote it and wrote the introduction in twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two so one of the things that this book asks us to think about is is kind of white supremacy as a all-encompassing force that influences and impacts everybody, Um, white people, black people, everybody, right? Um So we often think about white supremacy, and we think about the kind of victims, for lack of a better word, of white supremacy as people of color. But Chestnut really says, actually, white supremacy is killing white people more than or as much as anybody else. And that's a very 21st century way. I mean, there's a book by a sociologist called Dying for Whiteness, I think, which is kind of making the same claim. I mean, the book also, you know, narrates the makings of a a political coup, which we have seen happening or attempted to happen in the recent past, right? Um, And so I think there is a way that Chesson is inviting us to see the ways that the past – continues to restage itself, um, that we're not really far away from the moment that we think we're so far away from. And so for those reasons, I think it's, it's it now more than ever, the text is, is worth reading.
0: Autumn Womack has joined us to talk about Charles W. Chestnut's The Marrow of Tradition. Thank you so much, Autumn. Great to see you.
1: It's been so fun.
0: The Norton Library edition of The Marrow of Tradition by Charles W. Chestnut with an introduction by Autumn Womack, is available now in paperback and ebook. Check out the links in the description to this episode for ordering options and more information about the Norton Library, including the full catalog of titles.